Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com. From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. Today on Texas Matters, TPR's Paul Flav's investigative report, Justice Ignored. We hear how Texas is failing child victims of sex crimes, and we hear about one alleged perpetrator who is still free. This is Texas Matters. From Texas Public Radio, here's Paul Flav. Four months ago, I wrote about a girl who died while on the run from police. The court report I found her in just called her RR. It was sad. Her life. I mean, her life was really sad. She'd fled a treatment facility trying to help her and ended up dead. She'd been raped and trafficked by alleged murderers. And then she died in a car accident. I didn't know her name. I didn't know anything about her childhood outside of her abuse. So I wrote a short piece about the girl's tragic life, death, the center she escaped from, and the report I found her in, and hit publish. Then I forgot about it. And then I got a call from the girl's grandmother. Hello? Robin Ferris was her name, and she said her granddaughter's name was Shauna Rogers. Yes, sir. And I had a couple things wrong in my story. Correct. She wanted people to know more about the girl she raised. Shauna's parents both struggled with drugs, and ultimately Ferris had to get custody taking it from her son, Sean. You know, he is a dumbass. Okay, that's, I was trying to be nice, but no, you hit the nail on the head. But most importantly, she wanted me to know the people who victimized Shauna were going to get away with it. I just want to see some laws changed where these girls feel like they're getting some kind of justice. Because if they're being molested and trafficked and these men are getting away with it, how is that fair to these victims? So I said I would write more. Okay, but you have to wait. Mom's taking a picture of us. I'm videoing you. This is Shauna Rogers, a few years before her death. A half dozen kids are dyeing Easter eggs around a kitchen table at one of Shauna's friends' houses. She smiles as she shakes a Ziploc bag filled with dye and a hard-boiled egg. She exchanges knowing glances with her friend about the video being shot of them. Little boys in pastel dress shirts sit opposite her. The 13-year-old looks happy. On the surface, her grandmother said she was happy. But there was something Shauna wasn't telling her. Not long after this video, Shauna's behavior started to change. She started using drugs, and she started running away for days. Her life would spiral out of the little control she had. And she would ultimately die. The road that led to her death was filled with people indifferent to her needs and many who failed to see her as what she was, a child. Of course, that's Maggie. That's her best friend. Robin Ferris is walking me through her granddaughter's life in pictures, or the parts she knew. Then that was taken at the ranch there. Ferris now lives far from the site of Shauna's trauma in and around Austin. She lives in a two-bedroom apartment near the highway in Gainesville, Texas. The second bedroom is set up for Shauna, but the girl never got a chance to stay in it. Instead... A midnight blue urn sits prominently on the kitchen island, filled with Shauna's ashes. That was her middle school coach that had the basketball camp that she went to. Shauna had been good at volleyball and basketball at Grisham Middle School in Round Rock ISD. Friends remembered her as funny, happy-go-lucky, and kind. But the transition to high school was rocky. 
Shauna's best friend moved away, and Shauna started using Xanax without Ferris knowing. She got through her freshman year all right, but it quickly got worse. She started hanging out with, quote, burnouts, as Ferris would call them. She transformed. And, you know, it was just like a flip of a switch, and she was just like a totally different person. Her Xanax use got so bad, she would have seizures. They ended up in the emergency room. Ferris thought the 15-year-old could be going down a dark path. She'd seen Shauna's father go a similar route. Shauna was angry, and she was running away. Ferris was worried. Finally, a couple weeks after the girl's 16th birthday, Ferris confronted her. Ferris was driving the two to get lunch, so Shauna was cornered in the car as Ferris peppered her with questions. You know, because I'm like, tell me what's going on. Shauna was getting upset. And she said, pull in here. So I pulled in, it was McDonald's parking lot, and she said, just get out of the car for a minute. Ferris got out of the car, and she says, Shauna lost it. And she's beating on the dash, kicking, screaming. Watching as long as she could, Ferris finally opened the door and got back in. And that's when she finally told me that Terry had been molesting her for years. And that he told her, if she told me that I wouldn't love her anymore, I'd go off and leave her. She wouldn't have nobody, wouldn't have no money, no place to live, no nothing. Jerry is Gerald Monroe, Ferris's brother-in-law. She was shocked. She had moved Shauna to Austin in part to be closer to her sister Lori, Monroe's wife. Lori said that they could help raise the girl, since she was raising her own granddaughter as well. They moved when Shauna was eight. According to Ferris, that's when Monroe began grooming and molesting Shauna. The two sat in the car in the parking lot and cried. Shauna told police Monroe started renting a room at a Comfort Inn and would give her money and then rape her. The money, read the police affidavit, was so she wouldn't tell anyone. Yeah, it's a long story. I really don't want to talk about it. It's over. That's Jerry Monroe. After a couple of calls, we finally got him on the phone. He denies he raped Shauna. There was no sexual assault, and I didn't pay for sex. He says Shauna needed a place to stay, so he rented her a room. He said she was a liar and that she was running from home because Ferris abused her. And uh, no one's talking about that. They're just talking about sexual allegations. Child Protective Services found no evidence of abuse or neglect from Ferris, but it did issue a, quote, reason to believe finding, saying it was more likely than not Monroe had sexually abused Shauna. It was devastating. I was mad that I could not believe that he would do this to a child. Everything about the last few years changed for Ferris. The drug use and running away were now Shauna coping. The money and gifts Jerry Monroe used to give Shauna, she now saw as hush money. But he would always give her money. Maggie Comstock was Shauna's best friend and had met Monroe many times. And just the way, like, he was around her, I guess I could just see it. She described an overly affectionate man. Shauna called him Papa. Maggie's mother, Jenny Pertzborn, recalls when Maggie first found out. And she was like, oh, my God, Mom, that's Genga and Papa. And I was like, oh, my God, I've sent Maggie's gone over there for dinner like bunches of times. And I remember Maggie telling me at times that she was jealous because, you know, Jerry used to give Shauna gifts and money in front of Maggie. He'd give her $100 bills. Ferris said that Monroe had often lavished attention and money on the girl and on her as well. When she first moved to Austin with Shauna, he would find ways to give her money. He paid for an expensive car repair without her knowledge. Hired her to work for him at Texas Foster Care and Adoption Services, where he was CFO. And I honestly think that he was grooming me too. For Shauna, rather than unburdened by telling her grandmother, she seemed untethered. 
things kept unraveling, and she sought solace in pills. Shauna overdosed two weeks later. Child Protective Services and the police showed up to interview her about Monroe. Rather than arrest him, though, police documents show they took no outward action. It would be eight months before he was arrested. And they didn't arrest him for months. So he had time to get rid of all kinds of stuff. You know, messages on his phone and everything else. Child Protective Services, on the other hand, reached out to Jerry for an interview, told him he was no longer allowed to speak to Shauna. Court documents say he immediately tracked the 16-year-old down. Shows up at Shauna's friend's house where Shauna was, asking her what the hell was going on. Scared the crap out of her. She's like, Nana, he's here. I said, go back in the house, shut the door, lock it. Don't talk to him. Ferris said Shauna didn't like being at home alone. She said she was scared of Monroe and was running away more. In May, Ferris came home to a note on the fridge. It was from Shauna, and it blamed Ferris for her abuse, for moving them to Austin and allowing Monroe into her life. According to a police affidavit, it called Monroe a rapist, and Shauna said she was going to end her life. Ferris was frantic, calling, texting all of Shauna's friends. She couldn't find her. The next day, the girl called and said she was fine. But Ferris wasn't. She checked Shauna in to a mental health hospital. And they kept her like, you know, three or four days. Said, okay, you can come get her. And I'm thinking, what in the heck? She tried getting her into someplace more permanent that could help. All right, let's see. Cedar Crest, Blue Bonnet Trails, Waco Center for the Youth, Senecor, Sundown Ranch. What she found was waiting lists and rejection. I went through... People like crazy tried to find any help I could for this child. And it's just like, you know, I was getting blown off so much. It was like, why is there no one helping me? That experience rings a bell with Judge Aurora Martinez-Jones. She deals with CPS cases in Travis County and with kids. But I think that there is a shortage in general of therapeutic providers, especially who are adept in working with kids and kids that have been sexually abused. Texas ranks last in mental health personnel per capita. For Shauna, it was already too late, though. She was hardly ever staying with her grandmother now. On July 5th, Round Rock police called Ferris and told her to come pick up Shauna. She had been found in the bed of a 23-year-old man named Jamil Watford. Police said she was, quote, scantily clad and intoxicated. What the affidavit didn't document was that cameras were set up facing the bed. That's when they told me that this Jamil was trafficking her. That he was having her do videos, they were posting them online. Police documents show Shauna was being sold for sex for weeks. Middle-aged men like Chris Churchwell, age 38, would pay to rape the girl, police say. But Watford wasn't arrested for trafficking Shauna that night, or for child pornography, despite evidence of both. He was arrested for four Xanax pills they found in the room. One source who asked not to be named said police treated evidence of Shauna's exploitation with, quote, the shrug of the shoulders. According to the source, they wanted Watford and his friends for something else. And Shauna was a witness to it. She, she murdered, she, she, she lit the fuse that killed my son. When we come back, we'll talk about a murder and why the victim's family thinks Shauna is responsible. You're listening to Justice Ignored on Texas Matters. I'm Paul Flav, and we'll be right back.
Welcome back to Texas Matters. I'm Paul Flav, and we're listening to a series I did called Justice Ignored, about how the state is failing child victims of sex crimes. The body of Chris Branham was found by two farmers outside Maynard in central Texas in July 2020. He'd been missing for a month. He had two fatal bullet wounds to the head. The 26-year-old father of two had been staying at a hotel. Connie had said she checked him in there. Her and her son had argued and that they needed time apart. He literally checked in there on Friday and was dead Wednesday. His parents, Connie and Jim Branham, describe him as affable, easy to speak with, and hardworking. And him being chatty as he is, he, I mean... Talk to everybody. He talked to everybody. He talked to everybody. She thinks that's how he met the men who would kill him. According to police records, Branham was murdered by Kyle Cleveland and Anthony Davis. But earlier that evening, he and the two men were at another hotel with Shauna and Jamil Watford. TPR couldn't find any explanation for why he was with the men at the second hotel. His parents say he didn't know them. Shauna would later tell authorities that Branham did know the men and he was there to pay for drugs. The documents say the men jumped Branham after calling him a snitch. Shauna would tell people that she was instructed to join in and record it. After her friends or their spies beat our son unconscious and was robbing him, she videotaped herself with her cell phone stomping on his head when he laid there unconscious. The Branhams think she was responsible for the death of their son. Police affidavits say that the murder occurred hours later and many miles away from Shauna. According to a source with knowledge, Chris Branham left the room with Cleveland and Davis and went back to his room. Early the next morning, they drove him to a field and killed him. According to multiple sources, Shauna didn't find out he was dead till weeks later. In June 2020, the 26-year-old father of two was beaten unconscious at a hotel. But that didn't stop the Branhams. They raised the specter of their son's death in media coverage. They drove the narrative around what happened. Robin Ferris brings up one story on her phone. Did you guys know that she is a convicted violent felon? About 80% of this story that aired in June 2022 is about Shauna, using the 16-year-old's photo and name despite being a victim of sex trafficking rather than the men that killed Chris Branham. It was all her doing. I don't understand that. They've got these guys on capital murder charges, but you're still saying that she was charged in connection with this. She wasn't charged in connection with this. Shauna was adjudicated for robbery, not a violent crime. She was sentenced to treatment for victims of sex trafficking. But the Branhams were upset. They saw her sentence as light and wanted her to go to prison. She claimed to have been trafficked. They treated her with total kid gloves. The whole justice system did. Mm-hmm. And it was just disgusting. Jamil Watford and his associates await trial, but not for anything they allegedly did to Shauna. They weren't ever charged with sex trafficking. Shauna was placed at the refuge in April of 2021. The facility set among Bastrop's Hills treats survivors of sex trafficking. She seemed to be improving. She was gaining weight, adding 40 pounds to her small frame. That I was getting my child back. I was seeing more of how she used to be, the joking, happy kid that she was. Ferris drove the seven hours to the facility to see her once a month. On the last trip, the two were supposed to stay in a hotel in town overnight. But friends of Shauna's say the girl was struggling with her forced sobriety. Shauna made it known that she was going to run from the refuge as soon as she could. Two former residents and a former case manager told TPR she used a staff member's phone to coordinate an escape using social media, trading sex for a ride. The refuge denied that any staff member's phone was used to escape, 
but acknowledged an employee's phone was used to reset Shauna's social media passwords. They also denied the allegations made by one former resident that said she told staff Shauna planned to run, and nothing was done. And so it was like 9, 9.30, and I'd take a shower, and she was in one bed, I was in the other, and, and I fell asleep, woke up a couple hours later, and she wasn't in the room. My heart sank. The girl had run. Ferris would not see her again until Shauna was on her deathbed. She was on the run for the last time. According to family, her mother, Misty Grant, was helping her evade police. Screenshots of Shauna's social media seems to confirm it. Shauna was staying with Misty's mother, Michelle McConnell, who told TPR she had no idea Shauna was on the run, but admitted that if she had known, she probably wouldn't turn the girl in. Shauna was with McConnell in mid-October, when near Fort Worth, McConnell's car was smashed from behind by another vehicle. Shauna had been standing outside the car and was thrown. Lacking brain function, she would die six days later. None of the men accused of systematically abusing Shauna Rogers are being held accountable. When we come back from this break, we'll talk about why, and regarding Gerald Monroe, about how his employer kept him working at a foster placement agency despite an investigation into him raping a child. I'm Paul Flav, and this is Justice Ignored on Texas Matters. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Paul Flav, accountability reporter for Texas Public Radio. Texas Matters was nice enough to host this series today. Before the break, we heard that the men who family and police say exploited and abused Shauna Rogers are not being held accountable. The men who trafficked Shauna were charged in the robbery and murder of Chris Branham, and a source with knowledge says despite more than enough evidence of sex trafficking, the prosecutor is solely interested in the murder and aggravated robbery charges. The case against Monroe was dismissed according to court documents, because Shauna died. In circumstances where they're the only ones in the room where the abuse is going on, she's the only witness that the state would be able to call to prove the necessary elements. Kirsten Melton has overseen 20 years worth of sex crime cases and at one point ran the state's human trafficking task force. She says the only way to prove a case without a witness is with digital evidence. But you must seize that before a suspect realizes they are under investigation. If you wait, then that digital evidence is very likely to be deleted or gotten rid of right prior to arrest if there's a long period of time between when the defendant becomes aware of the investigation and when the defendant is actually arrested. Austin police waited eight months to arrest Jerry Monroe. I think it's a crock. In all honesty, I truly do. That's not fair. Investigators didn't respond to our questions about the case. Robin Ferris blames APD and the AG's office because I don't understand why it took him so long to arrest him and why did they not get his phone and get all of his stuff up the iCloud as far as records of him texting her. Ferris saw a text from Monroe on Shauna's phone that said, quote, I sent you 55, you owe me an hour. A court record referenced videos that may have implicated the man had they seized them. Investigators TPR spoke with said eight months is a long time to wait. So when you're dealing with child abuse, that is one of the things that we always move quick on. 
Veteran Special Victims Prosecutor Nick Socius was surprised when we told him how long APD had waited. A law enforcement agency taking eight months, I, I cannot see, and again, I, I don't know the whole situation, but that is a long time from accusation to, to arrest. Another thing that troubled Socius was how long Monroe remained employed with a foster placement agency. According to state records, Texas Foster Care and Adoption Services didn't fire Monroe after the allegations came out. They didn't fire him after CPS said it was more likely than not that Monroe had sexually abused Shauna. They waited until two days after his December arrest, or eight months later. Yes, it's very unusual. And I am trying to, I've prosecuted a foster parent. Um, the second the allegation came to light with him, all children were removed. Um, his license was pulled. Uh, teacher, same exact thing. A CPS caseworker. Um, he was I mean, he was terminated that day. Monroe was chief financial officer for San Antonio-based Texas Foster Care and Adoption Services. He'd been with them for nearly a decade and helped grow it from a few foster homes to dozens. Texas gives him about $2 million a year in state funds. According to multiple tax returns, Monroe was the highest paid employee, at times taking home more than $80,000 a year for a single day of work a week. Eric Cartagena, a former manager at the facility, told us that he knew about the allegation against Jerry, but was told not to tell other employees. Yeah. And it was, you know, hush-hush. He said CEO Karen Perez was discussing programming with Monroe until at least 2021. Another staffer said Perez told that person that Monroe failed his background check in early 2021, but that he still worked there. The person was instructed to take Monroe's name off of documents. Finally, another said Monroe was consulted in meetings into 2022. Cartagena said he wasn't sure what Monroe's role was, but confirmed he never heard the man had been fired. There wasn't very much transparency with that. Um, they didn't discuss it with any of the other staff, um, just myself, uh, executive director, and uh, Karen. In reaching out to a half dozen former employees of Texas Foster Care and Adoption Services, it was clear a lot of them really didn't like the place. They said it was a toxic work environment. There were other issues as well. In reviewing their tax returns, CEO Karen Perez's name was nowhere to be found. Perez confirmed to TPR that she was running day-to-day -day operations, which experts tell TPR required her name and salary to be listed. Well, it's hard and fast in the sense that the people who run the organization whatever their titles are, should be listed. Mark Owens is a former director of the Exempt Organizations Division at the Internal Revenue Service. When we called Perez to ask her about Monroe, she was audibly frustrated. I'm not going to be discuss this with you. I'm sorry. She said he had been fired two years prior. We asked about the tax returns and why her name wasn't on them. Do you have anything else you'd like to say? Well, I'm, I'm asking you... You're calling all my prior employees and everything else. So, you know, I, I don't know what you're hunting for, but I'm, I'm done with this conversation. Um, we do have an attorney, and we'll make sure we get that number to you. Yeah, well, do you have it on you? I'm happy to talk to him. No, I do not. Thank you. How, how do you think I should get it? Oh, I guess, I guess she hung up. TPR sent a dozen questions to Perez about why they had kept Monroe on despite the state saying he may have raped a child. In the email, we asked her about why neither her name nor her daughter-in-law, Sheila's name, were on the tax documents. Sheila is executive director, say staff, but their tax returns say it's someone else, Nagi Patabanla. He didn't return TPR's calls. Again, Mark Owens. 
you know, oversights like that in the Form 990 filing are sort of classic indicators of a potential problem. He said, yeah, those names should be on there. And then he said, it's a red flag. You know, it's like uh, listing people who aren't your child as a dependence on your You know, it's in that category, (laughs) listing your dog. But aside from the filing issues, there was still Jerry Monroe. And the fact that they kept him on staff for six months after the state would have notified Texas Foster Care and Adoption Services, they had issued a reason to believe. One foster placement agency head TPR spoke to said there was no way he could have kept his job at her agency under the same circumstances. Former foster care and adoption services employees, as well as Shauna's family, also kept bringing up another woman who had made allegations against Jerry Monroe. That woman was Jordana Calvi, who went by Bree, and she was Monroe's stepdaughter. When she was 32 years old, Bree told her family and friends that Monroe had raped her when she was a teen. Uh, yeah, I, I heard about that. You know, I raped her or some other shit. No, she didn't like me because we uh, uh, said I took her, broke her family up, and I didn't. Jerry Monroe said Bree made things up. Things like claiming her mother hit her and other people molesting her too. He said she was a liar. But many in her family didn't believe her because when Bree said Monroe raped her, the woman had been suffering from mental illness and addiction. Like she'd be doing really good and then all of a sudden she'd have a breakdown and things would be really bad. Brittany Winkle grew up with Bree. When Bree told her what Monroe did to her, it confirmed a lot of suspicions she had had as a child. Um, I would visit, and I just remember to start, it was just little comments like, hey, don't be alone with Jerry. She said Monroe made her teenage self very uncomfortable. Bree's mother, Lori, who is Monroe's wife, also didn't believe Bree's story. Lori didn't respond to requests for comment. But Lori's sister, Robin Ferris, remembers her sister asking her if she thought it was possible back in 2013. Back then, Ferris didn't think so. Because like I said... I'm being straight up honest. I did defend him. I thought, there's no way. But she said she was wrong. And she suffered by having to watch her own grandchild, Shauna Rogers' life, devolve into drugs and violence because of what she said Monroe did to her. Bree's life also declined in her 20s. They were good girls. They started out good. Leslie Chapman was Bree's aunt and Shauna's great aunt. Somebody just really took it all away from them. She has no doubts about Monroe's culpability in both girls' troubles. Within a year of telling people what happened to her, Bree was staying with her biological father, Joe Calvi, and she took her own life. Calvi remembers finding her after his shift as a letter carrier for the Postal Service. He came home. The dog, who often excitedly met him at the door, lay quiet. All the lights were off. He navigated to his bedroom because he couldn't see. I walked around to the house, went into my bedroom, and I had to walk around the bed to turn on the lamp. I turned on the lamp and I turned around and look and there's my daughter laying there, you know, with two streams of blood down her nose and her eyes open, just laying there straight as an arrow, stiff as a board. And I just, I lost it. I lost it. No charges were ever filed about Bree. And despite two girls making allegations against Monroe that date back two decades, he remains free, living in Austin with his wife and granddaughter. What remains for Bree Calvi's and Shauna Rogers' families after all the loss and pain is anger and bitterness, all directed at Gerald Monroe. 
I mean, Bree was just so talented. She was just beautiful, talented girl that could have done a lot of things. And Shauna was so athletic and just, she was smart, funny. She's laughing all the time. They were fantastic girls and look where it ended up, you know. As a slight epilogue, the Texas Health and Human Services Commission launched an investigation into Texas foster care and adoption services shortly after TPR published its story about them. The Refuge for Domestic Minor Sex Trafficking, or the facility that Shauna ran from, was shut down in March 2022 over allegations of sexual abuse. No one was ever charged in the case. I'm Paul Flav, and this has been Justice Ignored. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. You can email us at texasmatters at tpr.org. There are past Texas Matters programs online at tpr.org. Subscribe to us wherever you download your podcast. And tune in again next week for another edition of Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.